Returning to the program on this day, the alleged birthday of William Shakespeare, is author Mark Anderson. Mark is a science writer whose work you've seen in New Scientist, our favorite science magazine, National Geographic Online, Discover, Science, Wired, and Rolling Stone, among others. He took an interest in the controversy over the Bard of Avon over a decade ago, and after much methodical research, the result was Shakespeare by Another Name, a fine book which we discussed on this show in 2007. The upshot, in case you missed it, was that William Shakespeare was a real person, but not a writer. The real Shakespeare of history was Edward de Vere, the Earl of Oxford. We wanted to bring Mark back, and with Shakespeare in the news again, today's the day. Welcome back to Radio Parallax, Mark Anderson. Thank you so much, Doug. Now, a listener who heard your prior visit sent me an article from the Wall Street Journal about an inquiry made of U.S. Supreme Court members as to where they stood, something you talk about uh, in, in your blog. Uh, let's, let's go over this. Yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting article. It appeared in the Wall Street Journal uh, earlier this week. And essentially, they, they asked a, a number of Supreme Court justices where they come down on the Shakespeare authorship question. That is, there are people who doubt that, um, <clears throat> that the conventional story we've been told of Shakespeare is correct. People such as myself, people such as myself who write books on the subject, or a book. So a couple of Supreme Court justices said, yeah, it was Edward de Vere, the Earl of Oxford. One of them was a surprise to me. One, uh, Justice John Paul Stevens, he's the head of the liberal wing of the Supreme Court, and he's actually written about this subject before, about the authorship controversy before, and he's made his opinions known, um, his Oxfordian, so called, you know, it's called Oxfordian as in the Earl of Oxford. He made his Oxfordian opinions known in the past. Turns out the leader of the conservative wing of the, <laughs> of the Supreme Court justice is also an Oxfordian, yes. which is news to me. So Antonin Scalia, that is. It turns out also they also spoke about some previous justices of the Supreme Court, including Justice Harry Black, Blackman, who served on the court for a long time, author, in fact, I think of Roe versus Wade, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. He was an Oxfordian as well. Um, but it's, it, I, I suppose that the larger issue is that lawyers tend to really get into this subject because it's about evidence. And, you know, judges and lawyers um, love this subject because it's, it's, it's about the proper weighing of evidence. Yeah, I guess they had a big mock court thing back in 87, Brennan, uh, Blackman, and Stevens, and the Oxford side would have won two to one back then. At the time, in 1987, they, they voted uh, for the, you know, the conventional story, but um, both Justices Blackman and Stevens uh, spent more time with the material you know, after, after, the, after the court, you know, after the moot court uh, event, and they changed their opinion. Well, uh, it, you know, it looks like if it went to the Supreme Court today, it'd be two to two with three abstainers. So uh, but that, but it, that is some progress. Yeah, it's interesting. Th- things like this are, are, are happening slowly but steadily. We're starting to see, you know, a shift of, of opinion, people starting to take the case of Edward de Vere more seriously. De Vere was someone who, whose life and times are reflected in practically every play and in practically every scene of every play in, in, these, you know, in the Shakespeare canon. Well, Mark, we knew we wanted to have you back soon when, when last month uh, some Shakespearean scholars and art historians unveiled a portrait that they claimed was the first likeness of Shakespeare painted in his lifetime. You've talked about this uh, at great length on, on your website, and you're unimpressed by their arguments. And can you tell us why? Sure. You mentioned my website. I'm, I'm glad you did because I, for listeners you know, for whom this is all kind of new, I would just point them to my website, shakespearebyanothername.com. That's all one word, shakespearebyanothername.com. So on my blog, I, I discuss this, and you can, it's right up there at the top of the page. You just click on, on, the, on the blog tab. So yeah, so I, I've discussed this um, uh, over a series of blog posts, and there have been a number of articles in various uh, newspapers, um, 
uh, in, especially in the United States and, and in the UK. And there was a portrait that was discovered or rediscovered, I suppose, recently. And um, the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust in Stratford-upon-Avon says it's the portrait of their guy, uh, William of Stratford, which is great, except for the fact that it's got the face of Sir Thomas Overbury. <laughs> um, Sir Thomas Overbury, who incidentally has nothing to do with the authorship question, but you know, in and of itself, but he was just kind of a, a, a media celebrity of the early 17th century, kind of a, I don't know if you could imagine, kind of a mixture of kind of the Klaus von Bülow and O.J. Simpson cases, <laughs> <laughs> kind of a sex and murder scandal. He was a very notorious figure. Um, he was also a poet, not terribly uh, outstanding, but uh, uh, Sir Thomas Overbury tried to marry this countess, and he was poisoned, and there was this big sensationalist murder trial. He, if there were you know tabloid newspapers, then he would have been all over the tabloids for years on end. Wow! So uh, Overbury was was a, was a real kind of media phenomenon in the in the early 1600s and in the 16 teens. Um, so there are portraits of him circulating and things like that. And now what's becoming clear is that at least a couple of these portraits of this you know this kind of media phenom. Um, were repurposed to be uh, quote-unquote Shakespeare portraits. Those portraits in and of themselves don't really say anything about the actual identity of the author, I think. What they do suggest is yet another level of kind of shady dealings here, that we're being sold a bill of goods. You can you can look on my you know on my blog. I and I'm not the only. It's, this is this is not just you know Oxfordians who are saying this, but there are plenty of, of Orthodox scholars who are saying you know this quote unquote Shakespeare portrait. It's a portrait of Sir Thomas Overbury. I mean, it's if you if you look at the two faces, and there are yeah. plenty of you know portraits of Overbury from from the time, and it says Sir Thomas Overbury, you know, right right on the engraving or on the portrait, um, and you compare the two faces of of you know known images of of this. Overbury character and the, this quote-unquote Shakespeare portrait. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's so far beyond dispute. It is clearly the same face. Yeah, people, people need to go to your website to see the visual you have on that. You've got a, a portrait of Overbury that you sort of morph into uh, Shakespeare, or I guess you... Yeah, you know, um, and again, I, and I, I, I should stress, you know, it's, it's not, this is hardly a, an original dis- discovery of, of, of my own. I mean, that one of the eminent uh, uh, Shakespeare scholars, or, you know, Orthodox Shakespeare scholars, Catherine Duncan Jones, wrote an article in the Times Literary Supplement, the London Times Literary Supplement, saying, you know, this is a portrait of Sir Thomas Overbury, I mean, in so many words. And these guys that came up with this, I understand they also they rather suspiciously came up with a, with an, with another another portrait of um, of uh, Shakespeare's pat- alleged patron. Right, right, yes, yeah. Well, there that that one is uh, that that one I don't really I haven't really taken a stand on. I'm not quite sure um, what what to make of that, but it it is kind of interesting that the yeah, the same entities uh, <laughs> that have you know come up with this now incredibly valuable <laughs> Shakespeare portrait quote unquote Shakespeare portrait have also brought forward a now incredibly valuable portrait of um, Shakespeare's quote unquote patron which again there's no evidence of that but that's that's what they conventionally say that the Earl of Southampton was you plugged your website I was going to do that as well shakespearebetterthename.com you got a lot of great extras on there I was just looking at it uh, including the fact that I guess they just opened a play down in Tampa, Florida about the whole Shakespeare-Oxford thing. That's right, yeah. It's, um, uh, there, are, there are a number of plays on, on the authorship question, and my book, in fact, has been optioned for some uh, dramatic treatments. Um, there's uh, a, a, a couple of screenwriters who are working on uh, what they hope is a, you know, will be a television adaptation of, of Shakespeare by another name. I think it's going to be amazing television if we can get this thing through Excellent. You know, all the right channels. That's great. 
And we should, before we close, I should just mention that this whole the whole portrait thing, uh, the cover of your book has a, a, a picture of, quote, Shakespeare and also has a portrait of the, the Earl of Oxford, and you show that yeah, they, look, they look suspiciously alike. Yeah, well, that, that's a, that's another portrait, and and it's and it's a whole other story. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's in short, uh, it's kind of a visual metaphor for you know for for what the for what the story of my book is, which that which is that the, the life and times of Edward de Vere um, uh, so so beautifully and organically intermingle with you know the stories and characters and situations um, told throughout the Shakespeare canon. Well, Mark, uh, keep up the good work. We look forward to your science articles, which appear regularly, and uh, and hopefully you can have you come on at some point talk about some of those. Happy to. All right. Well, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you so much, Doug. We've got a few minutes left in today's program, and it's in the third segment of our show that we will sometimes do some obituaries. But I wanted to revisit uh, the passing of Maurice Jarre, which I confess to mispronouncing as Jarre a few weeks back. Mr. Jarre was the man who composed the following. Considered Mr. Jarre's passing worthy of mention, anyone that can compose music like that you know, ought to get ought to get a word or two about him. But I, I was taken in by the Economist's obituary because the writing is just so damn good sometimes. So let me add to this story by quoting from the magazine: The cinema, as he remembered it, was off Trafalgar Square. It was a small, it was small, stuffy, and dark, and there. Over 40 hours in 1962, Maurice Jarre watched the first rough cut of David Lean's Lawrence of Arabia. The showing started at 9 a.m. on a Monday and did not finish till the Friday. And he was mesmerized. Peter O'Toole, the blue-eyed, white-robed Lawrence, rode his camel along a beach at dawn. He crested the dunes and gazed out over a landscape of shimmery oranges and grays. Cavalcades of Arabs, kafayas flying, raced across the sand. It was astoundingly beautiful, and it was completely silent. Mr. Jarre's commission was to write the music for it. It was extraordinary that he'd been asked. Sam Spiegel, the producer, had heard only his 10-minute score for a French film called Sundays and Sabelle, written for bass, counterbass, flute, and table harp. Now he was supposed to produce, in six weeks, two hours of music for a 100-piece orchestra. Anyway, I find it to be a remarkable thing to contemplate, and I, and I don't know how Maurice Jarre did it, but he did. We also have to briefly note in passing the obituaries of two entertainment business oddball ladies. 
The first is that of Marilyn Chambers, the adult movie queen who was at one time the wholesome model on the box of Ivory Snow Detergent. She signed on to do a movie while working as an exotic dancer in San Francisco and soon found out it was to be a pornographic movie. Chambers, rather than take the $25,000 offered, asked for a percentage of the take. Pretty good move on her part because uh, Behind the Green Door went on to make millions, something like $25 million, which was a lot of money back in them days. Procter & Gamble soon pulled the ivory snow boxes with her picture on the cover uh, out of stores everywhere. However, if you're lucky enough to have one, it's, I understand, worth quite a bit. In fact, the whole Procter & Gamble incident uh, did nothing but, uh, you know, inc increase movie ticket sales. Marilyn Chambers hoped this would be uh, her entree into film stardom, and it was not to be. She did continue in the adult film industry, but was unable to cross over into mainstream motion pictures. After retiring from adult films, she did remain a popular draw at memorabilia and autograph shows. Marilyn Chambers, dead at 56. Dead at 86, B. Arthur. The actress, if that's the word for it, who starred in television's Maud. There probably have been more annoying actresses in the history of film and TV. It's just, I can't think of any. Yes, her work was alleged to be comedy, and she did have quite a following, winning Emmys along the way. Which I gather they award you if you have a pulse. Anyway, I, I know I shouldn't, I shouldn't speak ill of the dead. B. Arthur, who was born Bernice Frankel in 1922, had a very long and successful career on stage and screen. And although I'm not quite sure how that happened, she was beloved by many. And uh, being we've got just, I think, one minute left, and I am a medical doctor, I, I do have to say something about swine flu on this program, I guess which would be that every so often a nasty form of flu does sweep around the world and it appears we are in the beginning of such a pandemic. There's no reason to believe, however, this will be a particularly deadly strain of the flu. It looked like it might be at the outbreak in Mexico, but so far in other nations it's not turning out to be that virulent. Most importantly, this is not the long-anticipated uh, H5N1 bird flu, which uh, is striking fear in the hearts of doctors all over the world. As this story unfolds, we will talk about it. But right now, it appears there's no particular reason to be especially fearful about this outbreak of influenza. Our thanks to Mark Anderson. We we're going to have Mark on in the future, I think, to talk about some of his wonderful science stories for national magazines particularly one he tipped us off about. We do want to note with some degree of pride that we were able to help facilitate getting Mary Roach onto the Playboy Channel's Night Calls program, which was hosted by the always hilarious Christy Canyon, who has been on this show numerous times. Apparently, a good time was had by all. Since we were having Mary on, we asked if she'd like to appear on Christy's show, and it, it, it all worked out, so I'm very pleased to note that. I'm Douglas Everett. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week at the same time.